0: Hello and welcome to the tea leaves podcast where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific
1: century brought to you by the Asia group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell and I'm Rich Verma. Each episode will bring you into the discussion with the most prominent policymakers, artists, journalists, business and thought leaders driving the Indo-Pacific from New Delhi to Tokyo. And today we're really excited to be joined by our good friend and one of the United
0: States' leading voices on defense and national security policy, Kelly Magnuson. Kelly currently serves as the vice president for national security and international policy at the Center for American Progress, a leading think tank here in Washington, D.C. She specializes on US defense policy in the Indo-Pacific and Middle East. Prior to joining the Center for American Progress, Kelly served in the Department of Defense as the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense
1: for Asia and Pacific Affairs under Secretary Chuck Hagel and Secretary Ash Carter. And while at the Pentagon, Kelly shaped U.S. defense policy and strategy on issues pertaining to the South China Sea and was responsible for strengthening U.S. alliances and partnerships in the region. Prior to her time at the Pentagon, Kelly served on the NSC, the National Security Council, for two presidents and four national security advisors. She was special assistant to the president, senior director for strategic planning from 2012 to 2014, and helped craft the 2015 national security strategy. She also worked extensively on security matters in the Middle East. And I know, Kelly, you and I got to work together on a lot of different things from Uh, your time working on the Middle East, uh, and particularly on India as well. So it's great to see you here today. Yeah, Kelly, thanks for being
2: with us. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: So Kelly, uh, this is a pretty incredible background (laughs) and this extensive experience, including, as I mentioned, four national security advisors and two secretaries of defense. Um, I want to hear about that, but I also want to hear how you got to that particular point. That's a a fascinating career uh, trajectory. So tell us about yourself and how that ended up.
2: Yeah. Um, yes, I'm an I'm an odd duck in the sense that I am both Middle East and Asia background uh in national security. I don't know, I guess uh there was no, you know, straight line. I think a lot of us have the same experience in their lives where uh, a series of opportunities open up and you seize those opportunities and that's how you get to where you are. Um, but I basically went into government uh, as a presidential management fellow. So I highly recommend that to all of our younger listeners. Uh, it's a, it's are, a
1: great program.
2: Who are currently in graduate school. Um, and that was really my doorway into government. And I, you know, I was one of those weird kids that wanted to be in national security ever since I was tiny. Um, I used to walk around uh, the house, doing foreign language impressions. Uh, I loved...
0: Where, where was that house?
2: In North Carolina. I grew okay. up in uh, Durham, North Carolina, but when when Durham was not cool, when it was still like <laughs> much more rural and uh, less full of uh, microbreweries than it is today. Um, <laughs> but I grew up in uh, North Carolina, went to public schools, uh, but was obsessed with geography and history and languages and kind of knew early on that I wanted to do something that involved, involved international relations and... In kind of pursued that path and came to school in Washington. And and that's how I got here.
1: That's really, that's, that's really a, a great story. But can, can you also talk about some of the challenges maybe you had? Because one of the things um, we hear about from other of ours, our colleagues, Sam Power, Susan Rice, and others, um, being a woman in national security is not the easiest uh, road uh, to, to go down. And tell us a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, um, you know, when I was in my earlier in my career, I didn't really feel that barrier very much. Mm-hmm. Um, but, however, as you as you progress in your career and you get you know promoted to higher and higher positions, you start to look around, and notice there are less and less women uh, with you when you're being promoted, um, and that's really it. Was sort of later in my career when I started to feel some of the effects of that lack of diversity in national security, um, and so you really just have to you know prove yourself and know your brief. I think the best thing that you can do is walk into a room and just know everything up up and down about what you're supposed to be doing. And that's the best way to prove yourself.
1: Can I ask you about your job in the Pentagon specifically, yeah. the, the APSA job, and you'll define... It's now
2: IPSA, apparently. Uh-huh.
1: Okay. So for all our listeners <laughs> who have totally lost us, um, maybe you could define what that was sure. and and what it is today and, and what What geography you covered.
2: Sure. Uh, So, APSO was uh, an assistant secretary position. um, So, a bureau of of OSD policy. It's Asia Pacific Security Affairs, as Kurt knows. Um, And it covers pretty much half the world. So, uh, it's Asia, East Asia, Southeast Asia, South Asia, including India, Pakistan. And then, of course, uh, Central Asia, including Afghanistan. So, it really is encumbers, you know, a lot of what we now know as the Indo-Pacific.
0: Kelly, one of the things that's impressive about you is not only your regional expertise, knowing about Asia and the Middle East are two dominant areas of international engagement and focus. And I want to get to that in a moment. But you also are one of those people that have worked at the intersection of policy and politics. I had a chance over the weekend to read our colleague, uh, good friend Ash Carter's book on leadership in the Pentagon. And I was struck reading it he was pretty critical of the White House and described a rather tense relationship between Democratic administration and, the, and mm-hmm. the Pentagon. And I'm curious, I, I, we seem to have that more in Democratic administrations than others. Uh, although this is uh, per- perhaps the Trump administration is the exception the that theory. the rule. Yeah. <laughs> but but um, you live through that. W- what animates that in your view more generally? He was quite critical of certain, what he thought, intrusive steps of, you know, White House micromanagers who want to, you know, kind of choose all the uh, decisions for uh, the Secretary of Defense and his uh, or her military interlocutors.
2: You know, it's interesting. I've sat on both sides of that, being at the NSC and being accused when I was at the NSC of getting too in the weeds on military planning and then, of course, going to the Pentagon and then me screaming at the NSC about being too in the weeds on military (laughs) planning. So I've I've definitely seen uh, both sides of this argument. You know, I don't know that it's necessarily specific to Democrats. Maybe it's more animated um, in those administrations in part because I think there is some sort of level of institutional mistrust or lack of understanding. Um, I think, you know, Part of the challenge is there not a lot of there's not a there wasn't a lot of a deep bench of Democrats who had defense policy experience for quite some time. And so not really fully understanding the Pentagon and how it works, um, if you're serving at the National Security Council, is a real barrier to making effective policy. So part of it I think is a lack of understanding, which I think is changing because I think Obama did a very good job of trying to build that bench. So I think in a future Democratic administration, you'll have a much bigger set of folks who understand how the Pentagon operates, um, including myself, hopefully. Um, So I think part of it is lack of understanding of the two institutions and their roles. Um, But I do think there is a sense that a lot of Democratic presidents are looking to do restraint of the military, and I think that is partly what drives it Mm -hmm. as well.
0: Let me ask you just back to the first part of the question. So you've you've been really central to two major endeavors, sort of crafting policy in the Middle East and crafting policy towards the Asia Pacific. How does that process and the issues compare and contrast across people, across <laughs> approaches,
2: and the like? That's a big question. Um, you know, it's interesting. I used to say when I was uh, working in uh, depending on the Asia stuff that Asia policy people are super weird. Um and thanks so much no offense yeah.
0: oh none take it yeah. <laughs>
2: but it is it's kind of it's, it's like a it's like a priesthood almost of Asia policy experts, especially china experts Kurt um as you know, and sort of breaking into that and getting people to not be passive aggressive in terms of how they relate to each other's agencies or ideas um, was a fascinating kind of experience compared to Middle East policy where it's like everyone just lets it all hang out. You know, it's like you go into an interagency policy discussion on Iran or Middle East. People don't hide their feelings. There's no passive aggressiveness. It's like full on, you know, body assault. That's fascinating. (laughs) So it's just the cultural dynamic is actually very different. Um, And of course, the challenges are, are not too dissimilar. I mean, if you look at North Korea, you look at Iran, uh, the 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 tools that you have to use to address those challenges are very similar. And so, you know, thinking through how to, to use economic pressure, diplomatic pressure, et cetera, to achieve an outcome are, are not dissimilar. So there's a lot of parallels um, as well.
1: So I want to uh, talk about your current job, not, uh, so much the Pentagon job, but you're vice president for national security at the Center for American Progress. For those people who are listening who don't know, uh, tell us about Center for American Progress or CAP and what does the national security team do there?
2: So, you haven't heard that we rule the world? I, I have. I, I, <laughs> I, I knew that
1: actually, but.
2: <laughs> the Great conspiracy. These are theories around CAP. Um, so, CAP is, Center for American Progress is a nonpartisan uh, think tank in Washington and it's. Um, It's got about 300 or so people in it, It, so it's quite significant uh, in terms of size. It has over 23 policy teams, I believe, at this point. So I run the national security team, but there's a climate change and energy team. There's an immigration team. There's uh, an economic policy team. And then there's education. There's actually three education teams. Um, So... It's, it's quite diverse in terms of the scope of policy issues that we take on, which makes us, I think, unique in the space. Uh, we lean towards center-left, which is progressive ideas, um, even though we're nonpartisan. Uh, so really, CAP is kind of like a, I would say, like a progressive democratic think tank is a better way of putting it, like a heritage, sort of like heritage, except heritage is obviously conservative. Um, but what I think is interesting about CAP is that I can pick up the phone or email my colleagues on the energy and climate team and and work together to put to, put together something that says national security climate plan. Mm. Um, and so it's really it's a fascinating institution to work in, and I'm I'm, I'm very happy that I'm there.
1: Oh, that's great! You guys did a, a important report uh, recently on China, and it's called uh, "Limit, Leverage, and Compete: A New Strategy on China." And I assume this is available on the Cap website. And it, it came out in, in April. Uh, but but tell us about uh, limit, leverage, and compete. What are what are we trying to limit? What are we leveraging? And <laughs> and how do we compete?
2: This was really uh, Dr. Melanie Hart is the the co-author of this report. She's fabulous. You should check her out. All her work is great. Um, this was really our attempt to put out a strategic framework that people could start thinking about the China challenge that wasn't just purely competition. Um As everyone knows, competition, as you guys talk about a lot, is the sort of name of the game in Washington right now with chi- on china and i I think she and I both found that limiting in terms of how we can think about this challenge. So I really tried to to scope out um, a broader strategy that focuses on limiting china's ability to exploit the openness of the u s system and the international system and limiting through mostly transparency approaches, whether it 's on investments here in the United States. Or um, you know engagements on BRI, leveraging their growing capability, China is going to be a significant power for 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 decades to come. So we found that there are places that we should be leveraging them more to to sort of build into the public good.
0: So I I liked the report. I thought it was good, uh, really good actually. I I thought it could it could have gone a little bit. Further on trade, it's hard for us Democrats to talk about trade, but I I do want to get you on a definitional question. So you said that China will be a significant power. So do you mean that China will be a great power? Do you mean that China will be the dominant power or do you believe that the United States and China will share power? Hel- help, us help us understand Help us understand what you think.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, listen, I think China is uh, on the verge of becoming the largest economy in the world. Um, they already are in terms of purchasing power parity, as you know. Um, so I do think that we are going to have, they're going to be a serious competitor, I think, on the economic front. On the security side, you know, I think there is a there's a question, an open question about where they're where they're headed um, globally. I think in the region, it's a little easier to parse. I think they have uh, regional ambitions with respect to recreating a sphere of influence, trying to undermine American uh credibility with our allies, et cetera. Globally, you know, I I I don't know yet what what their ambition is on the security side. So I think it's there's more nuance there um, that needs to be explored. And I think it's really important that you raise that because it's going to be a key to determining how we approach them. Mm-hmm. But I, I think they're going to be a major power, great power. I don't know if that's the right word. I don't like using the word great power just because I find that
0: sounds so nineteenth
1: century. It's a little yeah.
2: colonial for yeah. me. I, um, so you know, I think they are going to be you know significant
1: you were talking about the the Sorry, le- the, the leverage the category. Leveraging. and and do you do you really yeah. when you talk about leverage does that mean work with them to do things globally or to get them to do more it's both it's both
2: it's okay. both i mean I, listen i think with respect to belt and road um my view on belt and road is that if china builds you know a decent road in the middle of africa great you know as long as it's they're transparent about it as long as it's not you know, destroying the community that it's going through. So I think there are ways that we should be selective about how we compete on Belt and Road. I don't think the United States needs to belly up and compete on every project, et cetera. I think we need to be much more strategic about how we approach the Belt and Road initiative. So leveraging is really like thinking, thinking about how do we get them to contribute in a way that benefits the, the common good, the public good. So there may be ways that Belt and Road can do that, um, as long as there's transparency around how they're approaching deals, et cetera. Um, And then the final piece was compete. And our definition of compete um, is a little bit broader, I think, than the Trump administration's. And it was much more focused on what we can do ourselves to make the United States and the American people competitive uh, in this century, and that's going to require investment in education and infrastructure and research and development. Um, it's really investing in the American people, which I think are, are are going to be our most important competitive edge vis-a-vis China.
0: So, in addition to that very important uh, report, and I will say, it's one of the most comprehensive. Assessments about how to approach China. I agree with you that Melanie's terrific. And I urge all of our listeners to take a look at this. It helps us. We're at the beginning of a big strategic debate about China. I think this really helps set the scene. Um, in addition, I know Rich is going to talk about, but you've done this great new poll. I say great, but it's a little bit depressing. And
2: It's, <laughs> it's a mixed picture.
0: It's a mixed picture. Yeah. And, and you, you've you talked to about 2,000 Americans. You've, you've asked deep questions about American purpose in the world. And what I think it reveals is that there is really substantial questioning both the left and the right about traditional approaches of the United States playing a large role uh, across the globe tell us more about that poll and what you uh, see uh, how you interpret its findings
2: yeah I would I would highlight a few things that I think came out of it um, I agree that it's a mixed picture Kurt in terms of how um, Americans are viewing our role in the world I think there is an overwhelming sense of I don't know if it's exhaustion or a sense that we've been doing too much. But I think the there is an appeal that comes through in all of the polling questions around a more kind of restrained engagement is what we're calling it uh, in the world. Um, and, you know, I don't think that people want isolate, they aren't looking for isolationist policies, but I think they're looking for us to do less and to focus here more at home. But I do think there's an opportunity for Democrats in particular, because
0: uh, Trump comes... A- so, can I, just, sorry, is the reason because of that, Kelly, is it more because we've been unsuccessful with some of our endeavors in the Middle East? Or primarily, is it because there's a sense that we've got so much unfinished business at home?
2: I think it's all of the above. Um, and I think the American voter, many of them don't have a sense of where we're going. Like, they just don't know what the purpose of American foreign policy is anymore. We had a theory of the case you know, during the Cold War. We had a theory of the case even immediately after the Cold War um, in terms of, you know, democratizing the world and having the world become more democratic. There really, and 9-11, you could say, gave us another theory of the case. So you had the war on terrorism. Americans now feel adrift. That's why the title of it is America is Adrift. Um, And they don't really, so if you talk to many of the focus groups, we would talk about the liberal international order. Americans just stare at you with blank stares like, what are you talking about? (laughs) What is the liberal international order? So the fact that we're using language that they don't understand and they can't relate to, um, and they don't understand how foreign policy affects their daily life. And so when you ask them, when we were polling them questions, I will tell you what was interesting to me was the theme of protection uh, came through in terms of what they wanted out of foreign policy. They wanted uh, protection from terrorism, which I think was interesting that it's still terrorism, the fear of terrorism still animates the American public um, and drives how they think about national security. Um, the second one is they want to the the protection of uh, the borders, and immigration. It was an issue that came up, and then protection of their jobs. Those were the kind of like the top three. Um, democracy promotion, which you know people like myself love to talk about, foreign policy blob people, people like to talk about. Democracy promotion was like last on the list, um, pulled at nineteen percent. Um, so the traditional things that you know foreign policy people talk about are just not necessarily the things that Americans are, are focused on. There's also a, a big, um, well, I, there were a couple other things that were interesting. There's a big generational divide, um, as well, um, on both progressives and on conservatives. There is a, there's a polarization of what things we care about in terms of foreign policy. So younger progressives, that national security, or excuse me, climate change was the top thing that young people cared about, Uh, in terms of national security. So there's there's all these divides happening that are different than we've seen previously. So old categories like liberal internationalist, realist, aren't really applicable anymore. Um, You sort of have about a a third of people who identify as Trump nationalists. You have, uh, you know, another third who identify as kind of Uh, global activists who like Mm -hmm. see like climate change as a big thing that we should be focused on. Um, And then there's a couple other categories of traditional internationalists. uh, And yeah, so you're getting different kinds of shades of of folks than we had before.
0: Yeah. I I like that. And I thought, I thought it really interesting uh, analysis, a different way to cut sort of the, uh, the body politic into recognizable pieces. So what was striking to me and what we've seen in a lot of polling is this overriding concern among young and more educated people about climate change, mm-hmm. which I share and I think is completely right. I'm just curious, how do you think Republicans that are knowledgeable and educated, how do they square the circle on this? How do they you know, support President Trump and what is really a historical rejectionism around the reality of climate change? How do they accept that, and 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 still continue to support the president and the way forward?
2: It's hard for me to speak on behalf of Republicans, Kurt. I would say they're making a very bad bet. Um, this is this is an issue that is that young people are focused on, not just young people. Like moms, uh, women are focused on. Um, It's starting to happen in our communities, you know, whether Mm -hmm. it's, you know, rising, you know, water or in our farming communities. I mean, the effects of climate change are happening now. And I think this is where Democrats have a huge opportunity.
0: I I think I understand that. I agree with all that. But do you think people that reject, do you think they are rejecting the science do you think they reject because they don't think anything can be done about it? Do they reject because the people that are for it, they just don't like and they just don't want to be seen to be sitting on the same pew with those people. What is it? Help, help, help us understand that.
2: You know, I would say part of it, um, is likely, uh, special interests, um, in terms of, you know, influence on the Republican political platform. Part of it is I think a misplaced belief that this is not an issue that rates for people and is not a voting issue. Mm. And I, I think, again, I think that's a misplaced perspective. Um, and it's interesting because you're starting to see, you know, people like in, in Michigan. So Alyssa and representative from Michigan, who we both know, um, you know, in her communities, you know, it's Michigan, a lot of lakes. <laughs> people are very focused on clean water. These are bread and butter issues for, for people in Michigan. This climate change is not just some like, oh, the Arctic's melting. It doesn't affect me. This is stuff that's actually affecting yeah. But
0: But it's also interesting, and we'll move on, but I've always been struck by this. Yeah. If you look at the map of yeah. Democrats versus Republicans, Democrats uh, generally live in urban areas which are somewhat um, – Climate change can be more disguised, if you mm-hmm. will, not, or not as evident. Unless it's Where, Miami. <laughs> yeah, I, well, well said. But if New you Orleans. if you live in rural areas and you're involved in hunting and fishing, it's very hard to deny what's happening uh, in front of your own eyes.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think you know I think there's been an industry in the Republican Party that has just been you know churning out climate denialism, and that's just it's like a cottage industry <laughs> in the GOP and. I think that for for them, walking that back at the stage feels like they'd have to walk back a significant portion of their platform.
1: I want to stick with the poll for a second yeah. because it, it really uh, captures some of the tensions that we have. Uh, and, and they do cut across party. As you said, you know some of the traditional groupings uh, yeah. don't exist anymore.
0: Yeah.
1: But I also wonder if part of it is that uh, we have forgotten about our history. And whether you're Republican or Democrat, you tend to very quickly forget about recent history 70 years ago, 75 years ago. We just recognized the 75th commemoration of the D-Day invasion. When I talk to a lot of younger people, that is not a history that is top of mind. And uh, one of the things your your poll, I, I know David Brooks wrote a, a column about your poll, and, and he he his basic takeaway was, you know, Americans uh, would rather focus on themselves rather than be involved uh, in the world. And I, I, would, I do wonder if the poll... If you were to take that same poll in the 1930s or 40s or 70s or today, you'd come out with basically the same kind of answers. People want to protect their jobs. They want, they want to be protected from whatever that outside threat is. Today it's terrorism. Uh, they want secure uh, borders. Um, but it, in, the, in the previous times, people knew of the good we were capable of doing in the world. And I do wonder if we've lost that. And if this younger generation has lost that ability to have confidence, yes, America can be a, a force for for good in the world.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I think there's, um, you know, most of folks in the younger generation, they haven't really experienced anything since the war on terror. So looking at American foreign policy and they're going, what is this getting me? You know, these these extended military commitments with no real end in sight – um, that are completely disconnected from your daily life. I mean, Afghanistan, no one even—it's not even on the news anymore, right? And so, you know, I think young young folks don't really understand what the story of American foreign policy is, and they haven't seen a success. They didn't see, you know, Kosovo. They didn't see World War One. Uh, they didn't see Gulf War One, even. Um, so they don't really have a sense of American successful foreign policy, which is why it's really incumbent on uh, political leaders right now to provide them that story and connect the dots between why United States engaging the world benefits them and why it's important to the American way of life. I mean I think there's a case to be made. Uh, is, it, out there. is it
1: harder when you're trying to write the progressive foreign policy or or be in a progressive think tank and still make that case for let's call it yeah. internationalism?
2: Listen, I think that you can you can make a, a case for a foreign policy that is still about American international leadership. Maybe not necessarily at the barrel of a gun, you know that we've had an over militarized foreign policy for the last two decades, and now it's time to return to diplomacy and using other elements of our power and engaging engaging multilaterally rather than unilaterally. I think there is a case to be made um, for engagement, but that's mes- that's not necessarily the kind of engagement that the American public has seen in the last two decades.
0: I'm curious, Kelly, if 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 a Democratic candidate, you know, knock on wood, is is lucky or successful in the next campaign. And we have a new government come to power. How, um, ready do you think the world is going to be to accept a new American style of leadership that has some new elements, but also kind of is more in line with my, with traditional approaches, my fear is going to be that, that the reaction from the world, as we, you know, say we're back or, you know, we're we're, you know, more reasonable now <laughs> mm-hmm. again, that that rather than yeah. greeting us with open arms, that many of our interlocutors will actually be um, you know, less supportive, more uh, angry, and we'll also start thinking much more carefully about other options. What do you think?
2: I think that's right. I mean, I think I worry about it every day. <laughs> um, I think the watching what's happening with Iran right now is also uh, making me much more nervous about where we're going to end up in in a couple years. I think the problem, of course, is worse in eight years. So hopefully, um, twenty twenty yields a different result. But sure, I mean, I I talk to you know friends abroad all the time. Um, going to Australia later this week, I'm sure I'll hear a lot of the mm-hmm. this kind of sentiment about sort of suspicion about American credibility and leadership post Trump. Um, I think it's going to be a tough road to hoe, and I think that there's going to whoever comes in next is going to have to approach the world with some degree of humility. Um, at the same time, I do think there—I think the world does want the United States to lead. I do think there is a demand signal for American leadership, at least when I talk to European friends, friends in Asia. But I do think how we lead is going to be the key question.
1: Kelly, when I first met you, you were on the NSC staff and you were working on the Iran set of issues at, at that particular time. And, and before we close up here, I, I wanted to get your take on the specifics of the nuclear deal itself and the, and the fact that it's essentially the United States versus Iran with the rest of the world wondering if we'll ever come back into the deal. Just give us your sense of, of where are we, Were the Trump critiques of the deal uh, yeah. fair, and where do we go from here? Uh, yeah, and I'd be curious also, Kelly, like what
0: is what does the Trump team want here? Are they trying to provoke, <laughs> are they trying to get the Iranians to basically... Yeah. Um, you you know, give in diplomatically or are they trying to provoke a crisis and go to war? It doesn't seem... It's
2: very unclear to me, yeah. yeah, but
0: but it seems contrary to to everything the president said. He said, look, we got to get out of the Middle East. Why would he want to stir exactly what he suggests that he wants to avoid?
2: I I think the president should fire his national security advisor and his secretary of state because I think they've left him with very little options in terms of what to do with Iran. I think the president, I mean, I, I... who knows, I can't speak for Donald Trump, but I don't think Donald Trump wants to go to war with Iran. I don't, first of all, I think it's, I don't think he has a stomach for it. Second, I think he's, um, he has other ideas in mind in terms of what he wants hmm. uh, for his presidency. Um, but his his team has left him in a in a position where he doesn't have many options. And, you know, they pulled out a, a nuclear agreement that was working and that had prevented Iran from uh, pursuing a nuclear weapon, and had cut off all the paths for Iran to get to that um had th- that deal had the most intrusive inspections of any nuclear agreement ever um
1: and the critiques about ballistic missile activity support for Hamas and Hezbollah opening up the coffers to all the foreign sure. money coming into to Iran
2: Yeah but the but the nuclear agreement of course was not Was not about that, right? But taking away the nuclear agreement now puts the United States in a position where we're having to deal with multiple things all at one time. A Iran that's now, as of today, talking about going back to uh, enriching uranium at higher levels, potentially weapon grades, weapon grade levels. So now they're going to have to deal with a nuclear crisis and a regional crisis in terms of what's happening in the in the Gulf and their ballistic missile activity, et cetera, et cetera. So we had sort of solved one problem for at least you know ten to fifteen years. Um, and we're going to take on that, you know, the, the other issues. But now the Trump administration is basically dealing with it all at one time, has fractured the international community. Now we have the European allies are not on board with where we are. We've created a lot of friction in that relationship, not just on the nuclear deal, but on trade uh, wars with the Europeans. And so the, our posse, our global posse that we had with respect to the Iranians is no longer there. And now we're saying, hey, you need to pay attention uh, to what the Iranians are doing. And we need to have an international coalition. And of course the international community is going to say, well, wait a minute. We, we had a working agreement. Um, so I, I think that we're in a bad place. I know Secretary Pompeo today was on his way to CENTCOM. To discuss military options, I have a—I don't feel very good about where we
1: yeah. are. Yeah, I mean, sometimes we overanalyze. You know, what does Trump want, or what what is the Trump approach? And and sometimes I feel like it comes down to if Obama constructed it or built right. it, right? Yeah, then fair. then we have to be against it.
2: I mean, we all know he didn't read the nuclear agreement. <laughs> oh come on! Before he ripped it up, are we all serious? know that.
1: Yeah. Um, well, we could go on for for a long yeah. time. I, I do want to remind people about all the. Great material that you have written, that your colleagues have written at CAP. It's on the CAP website, which is easily...
2: AmericanProgress.org.
1: AmericanProgress.org. And you've got the China report on there. You've got the polling results. And, and um, Kelly really has
0: uh, led the program into a terrific renaissance, really helping
1: to the next thank you. phase in American leadership and engagement in the world. And I, and I will put in a plug. For, there's a very good US India report on their website. Is. Yes, right. <laughs> which I it's had an amazing
2: pl- <laughs> task force that we had.
1: Which I had right, the pleasure of Master Verma. Oh, rich. co oh, chairing yeah. uh, oh, last year. <laughs> I know, Kurt, you keep it by your bedside. Um, <laughs> Kelly, uh, thank you for being here. Thanks for your uh, outstanding service uh, to the country. We really appreciate it.
0: Thank you, guys.
1: And thank you to our listeners. Please be sure to rate us on
0: iTunes. Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time on Tea Leaps.